Every time Seth and I stare, share a stage, my first thought is, I have so much dirt on this guy. I have so many stories I could tell. <laughs> but then I realize our relationship is a little bit like the United States and Russia, which is like, I have, I have ammo, but he does too. And the fact that we could destroy each other keeps us at peace. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I won't say anything if you don't say anything. Sound good? Um, no, I'm really, really grateful that Seth is here to lead us. Uh, hey, we've been doing this thing where we're moving through the book of Genesis, just opening this very first story from Scripture and asking ourselves, what does it say to us about us and the world that we live in in God? And I think we've been discovering together that it opens up all sorts of really profound possibilities. Like, for example, when we read in Genesis 1 uh, and, we, and when we listen to it through sort of the ancient lens that it would have first been, been read through, that, that the whole world is a temple. And just trying to like learn to hear that voice from God who speaks and continues to speak and looks out over the world and says, the whole thing is good, the whole thing is good, the whole thing is good. And then that when you take people like you and me and, and we get called out to bear the image of God in that good world, like the whole thing gets an upgrade. That, that when you and I get our hands on the raw materials of the world and start making something beautiful out of it, the whole thing gets an upgrade. This is powerful stuff, right? So we've been uh, there for a couple of weeks. We've done some practices in our day-to-day life to help us think about how the whole world is a temple, trying to look for that, trying to hear that divine voice that says it is good in our everyday life. But today I want to ask, what about when the whole thing isn't a temple? Like, what about when you run into the desecrated places? What about when, when in fact, God feels very, very far away, when you feel like less that you're walking around in the promised land and more like a bit of an exile? Um, distant from where you want to be, maybe you feel kind of spiritually homeless. What about when the world isn't a temple? Well, we're going to look at that in the, in the very next pages of Genesis. So you got your, your insert there. This is uh, in Genesis 2, starting verse 4. And it's interesting because in the book of Genesis, we have kind of like two creation stories that are woven together, set side by side. And I, I think what we're, we're going to discover is that we sort of need all of this together, okay? So uh, just listen to how this begins in Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, it's easy to, like, fly right past that, but it's interesting that that in this time and the way these people write, nobody would ever say the earth and the heavens. You'd always say the heavens and the earth, which is why in Genesis 1 you hear again and again talk about the heavens and the earth. And then here the writer does this subtle little thing where, where it gets inverted, and it's almost like that's our clue that we're going from this really big cosmic story down to a kind of earthy uh, get your hands on a kind of local story as we read about Adam and Eve here. Like, like, we need both of these. We need the big cosmic word, God, like, letting light exist in the cosmos. And we need this story that kind of comes from the soil that talks to us about who we are and how we live in this world with God. So uh, let's just keep listening here. Uh, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Um, so just a couple of observations here. Uh, this thing about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now we're moving into the part of the story that a lot of people have heard before. This is one of those places in the Bible that shows up in pop culture. We're about to get into the snake and Eve and eating the fruit and getting kicked out of the garden. We're going to move through all that together here. But I just want to make sure that, that we, we don't assume that we know things we don't know about this story. 
Because if you've had like any church experience at all, or even like any pop culture experience, you might be like me. And it's funny, in my head, the story exists a little differently than when I actually read it in the text. Sometimes I realize I bring assumptions to it. And like one place where we could bring assumptions is this knowledge of good and evil that we read about in the text here. So I don't know if you've ever heard this preached. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody stand up and say, this is what this means. But I just want to stop right now and say, if you read really good and thoughtful interpreters from the history of the church and from Jewish history, you discover that this is one of those things in the Bible that may be less about getting it exactly right and maybe more about what does it open up inside you when you read that. So some, like, some people will map out different possibilities of what this might mean to us. Like when we say knowledge of good and evil, do we mean that to eat this fruit would mean that like, we become the people who know what's right and wrong? And is the problem with that that we become sort of godlike because it's God's decision who's right and who's wrong and what's right and what's wrong? Is this about knowledge in your head of right and wrong? Is that what's going on here? I mean, maybe that, that might be what this is describing. Or is this about, um, is this uh, not so much a head knowledge but experience. In, in this time and in this language, knowledge can mean experience of something. So it, it's not like you read about it in a book, but to, to have knowledge of something is to have experience, to have lived in it, to have lived through it. And then in the scriptures, we often see that, that the writers, um, they'll use two words that are sort of polar opposites, not to actually identify those two things, but to identify everything between them. It's a way of sort of putting the whole package together and saying we're talking about everything. So when the writers talk about the heavens and the earth, that's a way of saying everything, right? Or when I say like, um, man, I, I don't know, I, I went swimming, I got out of the pool, and I was soaked from my head to my toe, right? Head to toe, those are kind of the polar ends of the thing that you're describing. And of course, what we mean is everything in between, right? So some interpreters look at this and they think this is saying to have experience of all that is good and bad and everything in between, which starts to sound a little bit like this is talking about what happens when you go from that kind of naive childhood innocence that we all sort of break into the world with, and then you start to experience some things that, that break down that innocence a bit. You start to taste or touch or see or feel or live through some things that you can't sort of go back from anymore. Right? These are just some of the options that get mapped out by really thoughtful interpreters who try to understand what's going on here. And I'm less interested today in telling you this is what this means and more interested in opening ourselves up to the possibilities of meaning, which I think is one of the really powerful, beautiful things that scripture does in our life if we sit with it and meditate on it. Let's, uh, let's, let's keep reading here now. Um, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Um, now, some of this echoes what we heard last week, right? Like image bearers, like to bear the image in the world is to get your hands on the raw materials of the world and make something beautiful of it. Well, this kind of echoes that, right? Get your hands on the dirt in the garden, tend to it, make something beautiful out of it. But there's something new that's being introduced here, which is a blessing. You can eat from any of the trees that you want and a prohibition, which is, but you can eat from this one fruit of this one tree, right? So by the way, the word Eden literally means place of plenty or abundance or fullness. I like to picture Whole Foods on somebody else's credit card, right? Like all of that goodness and you're not paying for it. You know what I mean? Like abundance, plenty. So he says you can have all of this. There's abundance around you everywhere. So that's blessing. And he says there's work for you to do. You're going to tend to the work. So that's a, that's a calling, right? Like you've got a calling in this space. And then there is this prohibition. There's this one thing that you can't do, this one fruit of one tree that you can't eat. 
And then, um, then I, I, had to, I ran out of space a little bit here, so I had to uh, summarize some of this stuff here. But what happens after this is God's looking at Adam, and this is interesting to me. So Adam, in theory, like if we sort of live in the imagination of this text, everything's good for Adam, right? He and God are good. He and the world are good. He's in the garden, man. Like everything's good. And even there, though, God says it's not good for him to be alone. So God gives him a chance to kind of work through all the animals that are there in that place, and he's looking for a companion, and none of the animals, animals make a suitable companion. So we have this scene that you might have heard about before where Adam goes into this slumber and God takes a rib out of Adam and makes the woman Eve. Now, um, this is interesting to, to pay attention to for a second because in the text we read that God gave him a helper named Eve. And I don't know how you've heard that preached, but let's talk about this for a second. Because um, this is a place where people have taken different ideas about what it means to be a man or a woman, how men and women are supposed to relate, how marriage is supposed to go, all that stuff. And sometimes what people do with this text is they say, see, women are in some ways subordinated to men. Men are the boss and women are, are the assistants or something like that. There's two huge problems with that interpretation of the text, though. The first one is this. The word helper that's used to describe Eve, it's the exact same word that's used to describe God's relationship to Israel on several occasions in the Scripture. So that, that can't be about subordination if, that's what, if, if we're using the exact same word, right? Secondly, in the context here, it's interesting to note that like in the ancient Near East, when texts like this are being written, no other text bothers to talk about women being created. Now this is a time and place where to talk about the creation of a person or a group of people is to lift them up. It's to give them dignity and meaning. And no other text in the ancient world that talks about human beings created ever bothers to talk specifically about women. It's kind of the men are where the action is. It's a very patriarchal world. But in this text, this text chooses to specifically address the making of women, which is a way of lifting up women. This is actually pretty, pretty progressive, revolutionary stuff. If you hear a preacher turn to this passage and say, women, this means that like you're here to assist the men, find a better preacher. Like, <laughs> uh, it's just, it, we need to call that out here because sometimes that's where this text goes. Let's, uh, let's keep working. Everybody good? Let's keep working? Okay. And then we get to this sort of summary statement, Genesis 2.25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So, uh, so something's, something's going good for now, right? Like, they're just kind of walking around naked, Whole Foods, living a good life, no shame, <laughs> just kind of grabbing fruit that are allowed to be eaten and eating them, right? Well, then the next thing that happens in the story, and I, I skipped some of this in the, in the printing here, but the next thing in the story is the snurpet, snurpet? <laughs> the serpent shows up, and the serpent talks to Eve and starts sort of tempting Eve toward this one fruit that has been forbidden, right? The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they have this little conversation back and forth, and the serpent twists God's words a little bit and, and sort of manipulates Eve in, in a certain direction toward that fruit. And then we pick up here in chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And just like that, everything turns upside down in paradise. There's a, a tempting moment with the serpent. They look at the fruit. 
They, 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 there's what God said and there's what they see. And there's two different things in this moment, right? There's like what was right and there's what they wanted. And these are two different paths in front of them. And they go for what they wanted over what was right. And they go for what they see over what God said. And they go for the fruit. And everything starts to fall apart. Now, um, first of all, I just want to say this, this is um, interesting, not just like as a story about something that happened. I think this is powerful as a story about what happens like, I think it's interesting to read this not just as a narrative about something that happened a long time ago, but to read it as something that happens as a very human tale. Like, let me make my case. First of all, the name Adam in the Hebrew literally means human. Eve means life. That's what these, these names mean. They're already, it's like this story is begging us to think about, is this a pattern in our life? Is this something we can relate to or understand? Like, it's like the story is saying, human does this. Life is like this. You, you arrive in the world with a calling from God, right? You're here to get your hands on the beautiful things of this world and make something better out of it, right? You arrive with a calling, and there's blessing from God. God looks at us and says, it is good. It's good to be you. It's good for you to walk around in your flesh and blood in this world. But there are also boundaries. There are prohibitions. There are ways that when we get our hands on the world, we, we don't do the right things with that world, right? We talked about this last week. I think this is not just a story that happened. I think it's a story that happens and we should talk about how, like, how we find ourselves in this story, how we relate to it. There's, um, there's even this sort of beautiful vagueness to the fruit, and I think that can help us. Like the, there's just enough detail in this story for the story to hold itself together, but then there's all these gaps and cracks in the story that we can sort of slip in and find ourselves in the story. So we have this fruit, and surely we can relate to like seeing something, wanting something, at a fork in a road where there's a path in front of us, a choice that we can make that really isn't the right thing, the healthy thing, the holy thing, the godly thing. We can relate to this, can't we? And we can relate to like that, that there, there's sort of a progression in how we move toward those things that we shouldn't move toward. Uh, one interpreter um, goes very sort of particular with the way that Eve works toward the fruit, that Eve saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. And one Jewish interpreter says, this is how temptation works. Good for food starts with like an appetite. There's something in your body, something sort of about just being a human body that moves you toward this thing that's not good. And then there's an aesthetic sort of like I look at it and it's, it's beautiful, it's sensual, it's that thing that I want, right? And then there's like an intellectual justification. Oh, it's good for gaining wisdom. Like your brain starts working on your behalf to make sense of the bad decision you're about to make, right? And this isn't just something that happened, this is something that happens. And so we should talk about how this happens we could talk about, for example, how we get called to tend to the earth, but we've already talked about that for a bit, right? We could talk about the, the profound human need for companionship that every one of us has. But, um, but today, I'm going to actually sort of forego both of those themes. I want to press into one other theme that's in this text that you and I experience, especially depending on your personality type. You might experience it a lot. The thing I want to talk about is shame. We go from naked and not feeling any shame to hiding and it's almost like they're hiding themselves, hiding from one another, hiding from God. I mean, they, they see their nakedness, which is about what? It's to be naked is to have your vulnerable, intimate self exposed, right? And then, and then they see difference between themselves, right? Man and woman, difference exposed, right? And so they cover themselves. It's like they're hiding from themselves. It's like they're hiding from one another. And then they, they hear God coming, and they're hiding for God, and they're afraid. This is shame through and through. This is a profoundly human modern experience too, isn't it? So let's talk about shame for a little bit because it, it plays a lot in the scriptures and in the ways that we find ourselves broken, unholy, 
and that we need like some work done in our lives, you know? Uh, first thing you need to know about shame, and maybe you, you already get this, but you need to hear it again. Shame is a liar. Shame is a liar. And what, what I mean by that is that like shame will take, for example, something bad that you've done, and it will use that bad thing that you have done to tell you who you are. Right? You, you, you mess up, you break a rule, you make a mistake, you, you, you make a decision that you knew you were making in the wrong, but you went for it anyway. You, you cut somebody behind the back, you look at material that you really shouldn't be looking at, whatever, you do the thing, and then shame takes that thing that you have done and uses it to tell you that's who you are now. But shame is a liar. Or, how about this one? Um, shame will take uh, something good about you, something pr- appropriate and beautiful about you, and tell you that it's bad about you. I mean, we, we go on a lot of different trails on this one body image, different personality types, like what it means to be a man or a woman. Like there's all these different ways that you might be told it's not good to be you, but it is. There's never been a human being in the history of the world for whom it wasn't at a base level good for you to be you. Now, yeah, sure, we we make mistakes. We do broken things. We get formed into something less than what we're meant to be, and it's not good to be formed into something less than what we're meant to be. But at the beginning, at, at the base, it's good to be you. And sometimes shame is the voice that won't let you hear that. This is probably why uh, something else is true about shame, which is this. Shame is toxic. There's a, there's a researcher named Brene Brown, and she and her team do academic research on things like vulnerability and shame. And Brene Brown, in their research, they discovered a tight, high correlation between all of these things and shame. Addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders all correlate to shame. So it's like, if, if, if you're struggling with shame, you might be struggling with more than shame. You might be struggling with some of these other really broken, difficult things. And when I hear this list, I think of um, this story that I read growing up. Anybody a uh, fan of The Little Prince? You guys know this story? It kind of got a new life on Netflix, I think, a little while ago with a little animated thing, The Little Prince. So The Little Prince is this little French children's story that got translated into, like, a bunch of languages and became really popular decades ago. And it's this bizarre little prince who travels around to different planets and every planet has like one strange character living on them. And each little encounter is a bit of a parable. And in the little prince, the little prince goes to this planet where there's a drunkard, a, a tippler, a, uh, an alcoholic, if you will, who's, who's there on the, on the planet. And the, the little prince uh, says, says to the man, why do you drink so much? And the man says, well, I'm drinking to forget. And the little prince says, well, what are you trying to forget? And the man says, I'm trying to forget that I'm ashamed. And the little prince presses further, and the prince says, well, what are you ashamed of? And he says, I'm ashamed that I'm a drunk. You can just, you can like sense the black hole in that, right? Like it, it'll just suck you further in. So shame correlates to these, these difficult struggles like addiction and depression, violence, aggression. And then surely struggling with addiction and depression and violence and aggression, then we become more ashamed of that stuff, right? It's like really, really toxic for us. Another thing about shame that you need to know is that shame is in the system. And here's what I mean by that. Shame's not just an inner reality. It's not something that you carry or I carry. Shame is an interpersonal, interrelational, sort of systemic reality too. So what I mean is like there are churches that function on shame. There are families that operate on shame. It's like in the operating system of the family. Not every family, but, but it can become the operating system of any relational network. Family, work, there are offices, there are, there are places of work that operate on shame. There are schools that operate on shame. There are sports teams that operate on shame. It's the way that people get kept in line and things get done. Shame sometimes is in the system. Like, have, you ever, have you ever been shamed? I mean, like, not your mom saying shame on you and, like, slapping you on the wrist. Have you ever been shamed? 
I've had a few experiences of this, and when you realize that's what's going on, it's kind of mind-blowing. A little while ago, I was in uh, Sri Lanka with my friend Prashan, and uh, Prashan leads this very impressive, like, global network of young peacemakers aged 18 to 25 who come from all over the world. They come from conflict zones in, like, 18 countries, places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and El Salvador and Colombia, and these are, like, young leaders who are doing really impressive, beautiful work. They're, they're, um, for example, places where the Taliban is recruiting young people because they've convinced the young people that's the only future for their faith and for their country, right? These are young leaders who are resisting the Taliban, have bounties on their heads, and are saying things like, no, 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 there, you, you can give your life to peacemaking and, and fruitful, positive work. You don't have to give your life to that stuff. So we go to Sri Lanka, and he invites me to come along for this, this, this summit, this gathering, all these young peacemakers. And at one point, Prashant says to me, hey, we're going to have uh, the former chief justice of the Sri Lankan Supreme Court here. I want you to interview her for everyone. And I, I said, like, Prashant, don't you have anybody else? <laughs> you got anybody else that could do this? And he's like, no, no, you'll be fine. You're going to interview her about her role in the Civil War in the 80s and how she was involved in trying to bring peace after the Civil War. And then he tells me, by the way, she's a bit difficult. <laughs> yeah, right? So, so I start, like, and they have... Where we were, there's like very bad internet, and I'm like trying to look up this lady's career and try to like learn how I should address her. Like, what do you, what do you call it? Your majesty? Like, I don't know what you're supposed to do. You know, like, what's the protocol, you know? So I'm looking all this stuff up, and then I also discovered that her name is nine syllables, two of which require sounds that my mouth has never made in Indiana. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I'm kind of freaking out about this, and I get a friend who's Sri Lankan to say her name for me, and I record it on my camera, and just like repeat it five times, and I go back to my room, and I just sit and listen to the name repeated again and again and again. And the day comes for the interview, and she walks in, and I'm not quite sure I have it right. Now, we've got like a lunch gathering right before the big convocation. So the convocation is when all the delegates from all the countries are there, and we're going to be on the stage, and I'm going to interview the justice. But before that, in the lunch, she walks in, and remember last week I talked about the customer service lady who, like, I could get the attitude a mile away? This was like that, only it was, it was ego. Like, like, her ego walked into the room before she even got there. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it was, it was really intense. I'd never seen a person that was so, like, able to embody that kind of attitude, you know? And I'm kind of freaking out and a little bit nervous, and I'm thinking, what happens if I butcher this woman's name in front of everyone? So I start doing some preemptive damage control before we get to the convocation. And I'm like falling over myself to try to be respectful. You know, Madam Justice, I'm so honored to have the chance to speak with you. And I, I want you to know that I'm a dumb American from Indiana, and I'm very sorry about that. And you know that Americans just suck at languages, and I'm very sorry about that. And it's because we're all narcissistic white Westerners and that we're terrible. But I want you to know, that I, I'm, I have been working very hard to make sure that I pronounce your name appropriately, but please forgive me if I stumble a little bit. And right about there, she cuts me off. And she says in front of our whole little lunch, how rude. I said, I'm sorry? Said, how rude. It's very rude not to learn to pronounce a person's name. Why, why wouldn't you learn how to pronounce a person's name? What's wrong with you? I said, man, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain that I have been trying to learn your name. I'm working very hard on this. I'm very, very, how rude. I can't believe that you wouldn't know my name. What's your name, she says to me. Jason Miller? <laughs> Jason Miller, do you see how easy that was for me? Why can't you learn my name? I realize she's actively shaming me. This is like an energy to it, right? She is shaming me in front of these people, my teammates, my friends. Fortunately, in this situation, all of my friends knew she was difficult, and it wasn't like something that wounded me enough for therapy later. I've got other wounds that take me to therapy, but... But shame, shame can be in the system. It can be in your family, in your workplace, in your office, in, in your church. Shame can be the way that we interact with one another. You've got to keep your eye out for it. 
So shame is a liar and shame is toxic and shame is in the system, which begs the question, like, what do we do about it? Like, how do we defeat it? How do we rescue ourselves from it? How do we go from hiding in the garden to finding ourselves again and walking forward with God? Well, uh, there's one more bit of research that comes from Brene Brown's team. They asked themselves, is there anything that we could demonstrate empirically, like in the laboratory, like can we prove, is there anything that will reliably defeat shame? Is there anything that can do it? And in their research, they came to one striking conclusion. Shame doused with empathy dies. They say, like, if you could imagine, like, a Petri dish in a laboratory, and if you could put shame in the Petri dish, and then if you could inject empathy into that Petri dish, the shame would die. It's almost as if the real power or energy of shame is not just that it calls out what you've done or who you are. It's that it says, you're the only one. You're the only one. Adam and Eve had their eyes open, and Adam looks at Eve and says, apparently I'm the only one. I mean, not to be funny about it, but quite, quite seriously, that's in the imagery of this text, right? Eve, her eyes are open, they're naked, she looks at Adam, looks at herself, and says, I'm the only one, right? And so they go into hiding. It's like that's the energy of shame, to whisper at you and say, I'm, or you're, you're the only one. And so when we, when we look at one another and we say, me too, when we catch each other in our mistakes and we say, me too, when one of us fails, falls, struggles, and we come around and say, me too, this is how toxic shame dies. And the good news is we're not alone in this. This is really interesting because for 2,000 years, Christians have been saying that Jesus takes away our shame. Have you ever heard that in a song or a sermon or whatever? This is the way that Christians talk about the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus takes away our shame. And it's interesting because sometimes I've heard that and I've wondered, what do we mean by that? Do we mean like that Jesus like has a magic wand? Like is shame something that he can like metaphysically just like, like squeegee away? Like, like quite seriously, what do we mean when we say that Jesus takes away our shame? Well, let me show you how I think this all connects. This is uh, on the back page of your scriptures there. This is from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Uh, as the Bible talks about Jesus, Hebrews uh, chapter 2 verse 16. For surely it's not angels, this is um, God that we're talking about, he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, two chapters later, Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its what? Yeah, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The really good news is it's not just maybe that we can string together some empathy, you and me. The really good news is that revealed in Jesus is a God who quite truly, deeply, authentically, experientially can look at you and me and say, you know that moment when there was what was right and there was what you wanted and there were two different things? Me too. You know that moment when there's what you saw and there's what God said and there were two different things and you weren't sure which way you were going to go? That God can truly, 
profoundly, authentically say to us, me too. Like the dark nights when you are just racing against, working against, fighting against the person you don't want to be. But sometimes you lose that battle. Jesus had those late nights where he felt that tug of war too. I mean, this is profound. This isn't a sterilized God in the heavens. This is a God who gets his hands into the soil and the same God that kisses the soil with his breath to make us alive lets his body go into the earth and die knowing what it's like to suffer in these bodies, to get dragged in two different directions, to have this tug of war going on for you and me. You don't ever have to wonder if it's just you if you're alone. Like the God of the universe can say authentically, deeply, truly, powerfully, experientially, personally, the struggle, the temptation, the way that you've been torn into, me too. Um, back in Genesis, it's interesting. There are all these warnings about eating the fruit, right? Don't eat that fruit, you'll die. And, and if, if, you, if you read the story quickly or casually, you might miss the way it actually ends. Now, Adam and Eve, they, they do end up exiled from that garden. They do end up sort of living um, a life that I think feels more distant from God. And yet, right here at the end of the story, verse uh, 21 in chapter 3, they've got these, um, these ratty, tattered fig leaves covering themselves up, right? And we read that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That he covered them that the, the very source of their shame that they were trying to cover on their own couldn't be nearly as well covered up as what he gave them. And so we covered them. And every time I read that, I imagine myself being there like Adam and Eve, and I'm hiding and I'm running and I'm ashamed of what I've done, and I'm, I'm afraid of being found out for the fraud that I am, or whatever those feelings are that we have in our life, right? I picture myself being there like them, and God has given me this beautiful new covering, and I realize the trick is I probably have to uncover one more time before I can put that on. Right? I mean, like, if I give you new clothes, you're going to have to take off the clothes that you're wearing to put them on, right? If I buy you, like, a, a beautiful new wardrobe, you're going to have to take what you are wearing right now off so that you can put that beautiful new thing on. This, I think, is the sort of courageous step that you and I have to take every day to be the ones who look at one another and say, me too. Like, you and I, we have this incredible potential to be agents of healing for other people. Like, you, you have people in your life, whether you know it or not, who are struggling deeply with shame. You might not be. Not everybody does. Different personality types, different family backgrounds. Not everybody struggles a lot with it. But I guarantee you there are people in your work, your life, they might be sitting right next to you right now, and shame is a heavy burden that they carry. And you and I, like, we have this potential to be agents of healing for one another, to be the ones who say, like, very authentically, me too, and, and watch, like, new life break out of that. But I don't think we can get there unless we find the courage to uncover ourselves a bit, Right? Like, we might have to actually sit uh, through a dark night where we're confronted with who we are a little bit. Not to beat ourselves up, not to hang our heads, not to, like, abuse ourselves religiously, but simply to grow aware of, of what are we running from in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own stories. You sit through that dark night, and then you can look at somebody else and say authentically, me too, and just wait, just watch to see a little bit of healing emerge. You, you get a taste for that. And you won't cling so tightly to your dark places. You'll, you'll be more free to give them away because when you see that they could be used to heal someone, to help someone, when you see that like start to shape a community because there are shame-based communities, but there's also something other than that. There are empathy-driven communities. What if like that could be the operating system of our church? 
Like, what if that was actually like the water that we swam in together as a community? What if you took that back to your home? What if you took that back to your office, that empathy was like the currency that we dealt in? Empathy was how we dealt with problems with one another. Empathy was how we handled conflict with one another. That could be very different and far more beautiful than the world that sometimes doesn't feel like a temple, right? Like, like we, we could actually make something better together. These, uh, these two texts, um, Genesis 1 that we've, we're in the last couple of weeks, the world is a temple made in the image of God, and this text, which ends with human beings in exile in some way. Not that God has come hard against them, because remember, he covered them, but yet some experience of distance from God, of, of exile, of wandering. I don't know about you, but I actually need, I need both of these on the table, because that's the only way I can get my hands on the whole truth. Right? The whole world is a temple, and yet there are places that feel desecrated. God is with us everywhere. You can't go anywhere to get away from the loving presence of God, and yet there are moments when God feels very, 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 very far away. Um, made in the image of God, and yet, like, so capable of breaking that image, of rebelling, of resisting the prohibition, and not living in the blessing. Like, both of these stories, I need side by side to get my hands around who I am and what I experience every day. So, uh, so this is Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and... Um, to wrap things up today, I asked Seth if he would uh, share a song of his with us. This is an original that he wrote that I think um, couldn't be more appropriate for where we've been with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so um, you'll, you'll see the words are printed in your program just so that you could follow along if you want to sort of meditate or reflect while the band uh, creates this space for us. And then at the end of that, we'll just put a few more words on our lips together. We'll go back to one of the songs that we sang earlier in our gathering. But... Um, let me just encourage you to breathe deeply and give yourself the gift of this moment and whatever that means for you. If the word God is a word that doesn't work for you, that's okay. Like, this could just be a great moment to reflect on dynamics of your own life, whether shame shows up anywhere or whether there's anybody that you could help with that. If God's a word that does work for you, this might be a great moment for some prayer, even to just sort of say, hey, like, God, if you want to show me something going on inside that I was unaware of, we could do that right now. And through that, we'll just sort of practice uh, this spirituality together for a bit before we sing. Too far away 
Yeah, keep my heart Keep my heart from staying in the same old place Oh, 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 oh. oh, 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 oh. Same old place. 
Come back next week. We'll be at Jesus' table for communion. It'll be really good. And whether you find yourself in something that feels like a promised land or a wandering wasteland of exile or somewhere in between, whether you hear deeply in your bones God saying over your life, it is good, or whether you've heard something else, this week, may you hear God saying, with every struggle you've ever had, I have felt the difficulty. I'm with you. Me too. May you carry the empathy of God into every arena of your life, and may we build a sanctuary of empathy and humility and healing at South Bend City Church for every kind of person who needs to walk out of that hiding and into a beautiful, known place. Grace and peace be with you, friends. Love you guys. See you soon.